0: morning. It is good to be in the house of the Lord one more time. So this morning, as Seth stated, we're going to continue with our study, our summer study on James. But before we get started, let's open up in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we have praised you with our song. We have glorified you with our prayers. And now it is time for your preached word. We ask that you would open up our eyes so that we might see. Open up our ears so that we might hear. And open up our hearts so that we might receive what thus saith the Lord. Father, I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So... Today, we're going to continue looking at James chapter 5. James chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 1 through 12. And, and James had, is in, these two, in this passage, he had two purposes. The first purpose, which uh, is laid out in verses 1 through 6, he was condemning rich landowners for the persecution of Christian workers. He is telling them that judgment is going to come upon them unless they change their ways. The second purpose, in verses 7 through 12, James is reminding those Christians who are being persecuted, he's instructing them how they should behave, even in the middle of persecution. So if you would, turn your Bibles to James chapter 5, We'll begin with verse 1. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and sil- silver has corroded, and the corrosion will be evidence against you and, you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasures in the last day. Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you've kept back by fraud, are crying crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your heart in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord, Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider them blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. So as we look at at these verses, as I said, James had two purposes. The first purpose was to condemn the the landowners. And as we see, there's a vivid picture of the consequences of judgment that's waiting on these landowners. The passage serves as a sobering warning to those who have been blessed with material abundance, urging them to use their resources wisely with a heart for the kingdom of God. Some take a look at this ver- these, these verses and they think that God is against wealth. However, throughout Scripture, we see examples of godly men and women who were blessed with material possessions and used them for the glory of God. Abraham, Job, Lydia are just a few examples of individuals who were wealthy and yet remained faithful to the Lord. So the issue at hand is not wealth in itself, but rather the attitude and the actions of those who possess it. In Matthew chapter 22, verses 36 and 39, it reads, Teacher, which is the great commandment in in the law? And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So God is not that concerned with our bank accounts. He is more concerned about our hearts. Because if we love God with all our heart and love our neighbors, that kind of love will control our bank account. A modern-day example of this kind of love for God and neighbor is Truett Cathy. Now, many of you will not recognize that name, but you will recognize the name Chick-fil-A. Truett Cathy is the founder of Chick-fil-A, a a billion-dollar fast food chain who sought to use his money and influence in a way that would expand the kingdom of God. Throughout the existence of Chick-fil-A, there's been criticism and controversy around their practice of closing on Sunday. There was a major airport in Texas that said they did not want Chick-fil-A to be a part of their airport because the restaurant being closed on Sunday inconvenienced the airport customers. When Kathy commented on this decision to close on Sunday and allow that day to be for faith and family, he said, I was not so committed to financial success that I was willing to abandon my principles and priorities. One of the most visible examples of this is our decision to close on Sunday. Chick-fil-A continues to get criticism about closing on Sunday, and even after Kathy's death in 2014, some thought that, okay, now they will open up on Sunday. But true to Kathy, True to his wishes, they have remained closed on Sunday. So Troy Cathy is one of the examples of how wealth can be used in a positive way for God's kingdom. However, there's still a warning about wealth. And this is what Jesus said in Matthew 19:24. Again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. That's very sobering. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. So now, as we turn our attention to the first six verses of James chapter 5, we see James giving a warning to the rich, unrighteous landowners. And, and, And that's key. These landowners were not Christian. They were not Christian. So as we stated earlier, he was warning these landowners about their exploitation and their persecution of Christian workers. James chapter chapter five, verse one says, come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Some scholars have stated that James is taking on the role of an Old Testament prophet who spoke against evil behavior and the judgment that will come if there is no repentance. James makes four accusations against the unrighteous landowners. <clears throat> First, they were going to be judged for hoarding their wealth, second, they're going to be judged for cheating their workers. Third, they're going to be judged for being self-indulged. Fourth, they were going to be judged for condemning men to death. This is a strong condemnation of these landowners. So as we look at verse 2 and 3, James began his warning by stating that the rich will be condemned because they have put their faith in things that are temporary. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasures in the last days. So James is warning them. He's saying that you have gathered so much stuff that you can't even use it. It's rotting, and the moth are eating it. They're saying you have so much gold and silver that it's corroded. The the, the accumulation of the things that they have, in a sense, is sinful. And James is saying that the things that you have hoarded and saved up will not last, but they will be used against you in judgment. In other words, all that you have accumulated will be evidence against you in judgment. As we just read in verses 2 and 3, James tells the rich landowners that they will be judged for hoarding their wealth. This type of behavior was only hurting the landowners themselves. However, as we take a look at verse four, James state that the landowners have taken their greed to another level by persecuting their workers, by withholding their pay. Verse four, behold, The wages of the laborer who have mowed your fields, which you have kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvester have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. So to provide some context of what's going on here, the landowners would hire day workers or day laborers. And there was a judicial law in the Old Testament judicial judicial law, excuse me, that mandated the landowners pay these day laborers every day. However, the landowners were choosing not to pay on a daily basis. They were withholding the pay until the end of the harvest. And so what this was doing was this was basically causing these workers to starve. They didn't have any food. They didn't have any any money to buy substance for themselves or for their family. And and when they held those wages back, sometimes not only did they hold them back, they, they, they used fraud against them. Even if they were to pay them, they would not pay them the full wage. James is stating that the exploitation of the workers is seen and heard by the sovereign God himself. And he is not pleased with this injustice. The landowners will be judged for their self-indulgence while they withhold wages. And, and what they were doing was they were eating, drinking, and being merry while withholding the wages from these laborers. They were taking advantage of them and basically using the money that they should have been paying to those laborers, they were using for themselves. Finally, James stated that the rich landowners will be judged for condemning and murdering, murdering innocent men. Now, as I looked at this, I'm saying, are you saying, James, that These landowners were actually physically murdering some of these workers? Apparently, yes. In order to keep from paying them, they were murdering them, which is unbelievable. Also, they were murdering them by withholding their wages because, in essence, if they did not pay them on a daily basis, they would starve. So now, as the persecuted Christians heard this letter read to them, James wanted them to know that judgment was coming to the unrighteous landowners. Verse 4 reads, the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. James is telling his audience that the cries of pain that have been heard have been heard by God, and he assures them that no wrong will go unpunished. James' final message to the unrighteous landowners is this. Your love of money will bring God's judgment to you. Your love of money will cause you to miss out on the joy and peace you could have received from Christ. And finally, even though you have so much of this world's possession, you have failed to possess the redemption of your sin. And again, as I was reading, reading this, I thought to myself, are people really this consumed today for the desire of wealth? Then I came across a quote from a book called Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger. And this quote read, most Christians in the, north, in the northern hemisphere simply do not believe Jesus' teaching about the deadly dangers of possession." We all know that Jesus warned that possessions are highly dangerous. So dangerous, in fact, that it is extremely difficult for a rich man to be a Christian at all. Yet, we insist on more and more. Money has a dangerous way of putting scales on one's eyes, a dangerous way of freezing people's hands, eyes, lips. And that's what happened with these rich landowners. Their desire for money put scales on their eyes and it froze their heart to where they didn't care anything at all about these day laborers who were starving to death because, not because they they wouldn't work, because the landowners would not pay them their wages. I'll let that resonate with you for a while. In the second part of our passage, James turns his attention back to the Christian, those that are being persecuted, Christians that are being persecuted, to instruct them how they should conduct themselves, how they should behave while they're being persecuted. James knows that this persecution is real, and God knows that it's real, however, James wants them to know and to understand that God has a certain expectation of his children even during trials and suffering. In other words, even when you are suffering, God expects us to conduct ourselves in a certain way. As we look at verse 7 and 8, it states, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits For the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. James uses a familiar analogy for the farmers. He's saying, You need to be patient even in the midst of persecution, even in the midst of suffering, you need to be patient. Yes, you have prepared the field, you have planted the seed, and you have prayed for the rains. Now you must wait on the crop to grow. This is all you can do. Now you're waiting on the Lord. James is urging them to understand that their patience will bring two rewards. First, the harvested fruit. Second, the coming of the Lord. He finally states that be patient, prepare your hearts to trust God with the things you cannot control and honor him with the things you can control. If we're going to be patient in suffering, we have to truly prepare our hearts because that's not something we naturally do. It's not natural for us to be patient. It's not natural for us to wait on God, to wait on someone to make a, to do something, especially God, for us. We're in the suffering. We want to get out of the suffering. But James is saying, be patient and trust God with the things you cannot control. When you're suffering, there are certain things we cannot control. When you're in trials and tribulations, there are certain things we cannot control. But he also says, we need to honor God with the things you can control. as we look at verse nine, one of the things that we can control is sinning against our brother. Verse nine reads, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As we look at this verse, we see that James is a great judge of human character in human conduct. Often when we go through trials, we want to sin against those who we presume who's persecuting us. We want to reach out to them. We want to sin against them. We want to retaliate. But even beyond that, we will be tempted to sin against our brothers and sisters in Christ. Think about that. I'm going to pause here for a minute, and let's think about that. I'll ask this rhetorical question. Have you ever been here? Have you ever been in a trial and tribulation? Have you ever been suffering and lashed out at those that are closest to you? I don't need a raise of hands. I think the answer across the board, at some point in time, uh, we have. At least I know I have multiple times. We lash out at our spouse. We lash out at our parents, our children, our boss, our brothers and sisters in Christ, the pastor, the church, whatever, whomever we can can lash out at, that's what we do. That's what we do. And James is saying, no, 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 do not do this. Because he also says at the end, he says, someone's watching you. We have expectations, God has expectations for us on how we conduct ourselves when we're going through suffering, persecution and trials. It's kind of like a sponge. A sponge, when you fill it with water and you squeeze it, what comes out? Water. Well, for us, when life squeezes us through stress and pressure and troubles, What comes out is what's inside. And if we're filled with anger and hatred, that's what's going to come out. That's what what we're going to show. That's what's coming out when we're squeezed through persecution and suffering. However, if we're filled with gratitude and with the joy that comes from knowing and trusting God, when life squeezes us, we won't grumble. Instead, Instead, we'll find reasons to be thankful. We'll find reasons to be thankful. And this is what James is telling the persecuted Christians. Find a reason to be thankful. Find a reason to be thankful. James continued his examples of how to, how to behave in verse 10, verse 10 and 11. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider these blessed who remain steadfast. But you have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord and how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. You know, when my oldest son was growing up, he was a tremendous fan of the legendary basketball player, Michael Jordan. And the mantra of the day was, be like Mike. That was the mantra of the day. You know, if you're playing basketball, be like Mike. If you're drinking Gatorade, be like Mike. If you're wearing shoes, be like Mike. And that was an expensive venture right there. (laughs) But whatever you do, Whatever you do, be like Mike. And so as we look at this verse, I'm reminded of this mantra and what James is saying to these Christians. James is telling his audience, be like Job. Be patient like Job. Persevere like Job. Maintain your faith in God like Job. Because when we do, the Lord will be patient, compassionate, and merciful to us, just like he was to Job. Now, James specifically mentions Job because he, too, was a ledger. The Jewish people had heard his story across uh, the Roman Empire. They've heard of the Job's tremendous trials, him losing his children, losing his livestock, losing his health. But, we have to understand this. James wasn't saying for us, for them to remember those trials and tribulations because that was not the story. That wasn't the purpose of the story to tell about Job's trials and tribulations. In the end, the story is not about his suffering. The story is about God's sovereignty over all things. The story is about God's glory, even in Job's suffering, God is and he was glorified. And it's also about the compassion and the mercy and the grace of God. Because what did he do? After Job lost all that he did, what did God do? He replaced it twofold. God's purpose for Job and all those watching or hearing his story is for us to know that no matter what Job lost, God was his greatest provider. And James is telling his audience, and he's telling us that God is our greatest provider also. He's telling them and he's telling us that we are part of God's story. We're part of his glory. We're part of His sovereignty. We're part of His grace and His mercy, His love. That's us. We are part of that story. Those persecuted Christians are a part of that story, just like Job was a part of that story. And that's something we need to hold on to. When we think about you know God being glorified in Job's uh, misery, we don't. Sometimes we don't understand that, and that's okay. But it is about God's glory. The entire story from Genesis to Revelation is about God's glory. And we, just as the Jews were, those Christians who were being uh, persecuted, and us today, we are a part of the story. And We need to hold on to that because we need to understand that to have patience in our suffering. Finally, in verse 12, James ends his lesson on behavior by reminding his audience to be careful about what they say. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you will not fall under condemnation. Again, James is aware of the stress that comes from suffering. But he stated earlier, as he stated earlier in this letter, we need to control our tongue. Especially making sure we do not disrespect God's name. So as we reflect over these 12 verses, how do we apply them to our lives? I've got about four things. They're not an exclusive list or an exhaustive list by any means but it is a list. And one of the key elements to being patient during trials and during suffering is to hang on to the truth that God is is sovereign in all things. If we believe that, that makes a world of difference. He is sovereign in all things. And right next to that is for us to believe and hold on to the fact that God loves us. We are his children. He is our Abba Father. He loves us. So we need to trust him. We need to know him, and we need to obey him. That will help us be patient in our suffering. We also need to understand that suffering is an, is an inevitable part of the Christian journey. In John 16, Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. As followers of Christ, we are not exempt from difficulties and pain that come with living in a fallen world. We have to understand that we live in a fallen world and and, and the fact of the matter is everyone is suffering. But the difference is we're suffering as children of the one and only true living God. That makes all the difference. That makes all the difference. That changes everything. And so we can take comfort in knowing that Jesus has already won the victory, and we can find strength and hope in him as we navigate through these trials. Finally, we need to understand our security is not in our material wealth and our resources. Our security lies solely in us being dependent upon God on a daily basis. In the Lord's Prayer, he said, give us this day our daily bread. Therein lies our security, dependence on God on a daily basis. So as I close, let me share this last quote with you. And it says this, sometimes when we're suffering, it can feel like we're the only ones who have ever gone through what we're going through. But That's not the case for believers in Christ. We are part of a legacy of people who have gone before us and have suffered as followers of Christ. We've wrestled through the suffering with God and came out on the other side as people who trusted him even more. And that is so key. That is so important. We've wrestled through the suffering with God. And his goal is for us to come out on the other side, trusting him even more.